Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged, the sister-slash-companion podcast of the FNS On Air. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordoletto, and I'm joined by my typical co-host, Elon James, but also we got a battlefield promotion from producer land to host land, Dr. Molly Cornfield. Hi, Dalon. Hi, Molly. Hey, Pietro. Hey, Molly. So great to have you in here subbing for Blake. I mean, I, I for one, don't miss him, if I'm being honest. Yeah, good riddance. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy to share that Blake is actually doing the Lord's work. He's working with Resolve on National Advocacy Day today at the time that we're recording this podcast. So hopefully he's winning over hearts and minds and talking to legislators about things important in and around our field and to women's health. So Blake, good luck and thank you for doing that. But we're really happy Molly's here is what we're trying to say. With Molly being here, she had the option of choosing whatever article she wanted from FNS Reviews. And we kind of have a nice pairing of articles today. We're going to be talking about the belly, at least for Daylon and Molly's article. Molly, why don't you tell us a little bit about the gut testes access? And if I've piqued your interest, continue to listen on to learn more. Great. Well, I'm really excited to be filling in for Blake today and presenting an interesting article from FNS Reviews. So the narrative review that I picked is called The Emerging Role of the Gut Testis Access in Male Reproductive Health and Infertility by first author Dr. Navid Bilani, coming from the Department of Urology at Cleveland Clinic. The authors of this article propose that insults from diet or the environment can disrupt the gut microbiome, and this can actually lead to negative impacts on male fertility. They propose that these disruptions in the gut microbiome lead to oxidative stress, general inflammation, and breakdown of the blood testis barrier and negatively impact spermatogenesis. I'll admit, I think about the gut really rarely when I'm thinking about my fertility patients, so this article really sparked my interest. The authors begin the article by discussing worldwide trends in declining semen parameters, which most listeners to this podcast are aware of, and the diagnosis of idiopathic male infertility, where we just don't have an identified reason for abnormal semen parameters. The authors describe how changes in the gut microbiome have been increasingly implemented in many diseases, presumably due to the gut barrier breakdown. And this intro really lays the groundwork that an association between the gut microbiome and poor semen parameters just isn't that far out of left field. They go through a series of studies correlating dietary habits with male factor infertility and poor parameters. And of course, they also spend some time on known factors and obvious confounders of obesity and diabetes on male fertility. Then things really get interesting and they bring up the seminal and testicular microbiome. So we know an acute infection negatively impacts fertility, but it was totally new to me to think about how there may be a connection between microbiome alterations and male subfertility. And what was very cool is the good bacteria in these studies, like always, is lactobacillus. So maybe I'll start having my uh, male patients add a daily yogurt. So stepping back, the pathway the authors are describing is dietary disturbances, lifestyle modifications, change the gut bacteria, break down the intestinal barrier, lead to bacterial translocation and increase inflammation in the bloodstream. So sure, how is this inflammation going to affect male fertility? They propose it's a breakdown of the blood testis barrier. 
Blood testis barrier is proposed to protect the haploid sperm cells from an immune response, as well as any environmental exposures, while also letting in nutritionally essential molecules. This section of the review goes into a really awesome level of depth, and it made me totally nostalgic for my med school histology class. So that might just be me, but it's worth checking that out. They make kind of a small but very plausible leap that dysbiosis in the gut can break down the blood testis barrier, let in toxins, inflammation, immune response, and then negatively impact fertility. They propose a series of therapeutics. Some of the things they mention are supplements that a lot of our patients are already taking. And then they have some really cutting edge ideas without wanting to give it away. They do mention bacteriophages, which is very cool. I thought this was a really fascinating review. They did a nice job trying to connect some experimental animal model studies to human observational studies, and I would definitely check it out. I found it very relevant because my patients are really interested in lifestyle changes and supplements that can optimize fertility, including improving their chance at natural conception, avoiding needing to work with me altogether. So while in my practice, I have pretty general counseling on lifestyle changes, some options for supplements, there's definitely a need for more options, more information to guide this counseling. And this really offered me a link. You know, there's a lot of links that exist between lifestyle alterations and male fertility, but it gave me one more link, one more reason that these things matter. I'd love to hear what you guys thought of this review. Was this a totally new concept for you? Or had you heard of this theory before? Did it spark any new research ideas? There's a lot of rat and mice studies in there for Daylon. Or are there ways that you would change your clinical counseling or change your practice having this new information? I think step one, you got to add the yogurt into the diet. If you're not eating the daily yogurt, you're missing out on cultivating good lactobacillus. But all joking aside, I think this was really cool. I'm pretty familiar with the microbiome research in female reproduction. I always thought the testes was kind of like the brain. It was behind this ironclad barrier that never the two shall meet and was really kind of hardy and protected from a lot of stuff going on. So to think that, my goodness, what you're eating, what you're putting in your gut, the inflammation that that's generating is somehow downstream affecting the testicle, the organ that's living outside of the peritoneal cavity surrounded by testes bearers, like, whoa, this is really cool. But of course, makes sense. It's all inflammation, baby. If there's inflammation somewhere in the body, there's definitely local inflammation, but some of these systemic markers are getting out and having downstream consequences. So it makes perfect sense. The problem I struggle with is how do you actually alter this to actually get the load of correct bugs into the gut to start to really turn the tide and change the direction of this inflammation in the gut to have these downstream impacts in the testicle. I think that's the big unanswered question. Do we have a therapeutic here? I think in female reproduction, we have a much more accessible reproductive tract. You can put things, you can sample things, you can really tinker with the microbiome in a much more careful way, but getting into the testes to change that microenvironment, I think, technically sounds pretty tough. Do they offer, Molly, in the paper any ideas on how this could be used as a, a therapeutic target or any ideas on how they envision this being manipulated? Yeah, they talk about using bacteriophages to target and adjust microbiome. And then they also talk about uh, introducing molecules that are small enough to pass through the blood testis barrier. Super far from prime time, as most interventions in female microbiome are really far from prime time as well, but definitely an interesting area for research. Yeah, you want to watch out when you're shooting in something that's going to cross a blood testis barrier because that's going to cross a lot of other barriers. And if you're talking about a small molecule or bacteriophage, yeah, I think it's, it's in in the future. But I mean, to your point, 
Pietro, to have a therapy, you got to have a target. And I think the target here is unclear. And there's a real, I think, desperate motivation to put a finger on what is underlying this, you know, steady decline in sperm rates. I think it's so stark and clear that it's happening. And I think we're grasping about for mechanisms. And so we look to these studies and I know humans, not the best uh, model, but even in, in small animal models that are much more controllable experimentally, there, there's been links here between microbiome and, and all the things that you'd better describe in the review than I could. I think fundamentally the problem with human, which is what we care about, is that it's all these things. It's a lot of things converging in our environment on this pathology in particular. And so which which target we can focus on, maybe we go to the, the bottom of the funnel, as you're alluding to there, Pietro, uh, inflammation, local inflammation. But still, I think we have a very loose understanding, unclear what, what it is that's really at the top of the funnel contributing as a root cause. So I think we've got a long way to go there. All right, Dalen. In talking about the gut, and I said that this was a paired set of articles, you actually took the artistic liberty to bring two articles to this month's podcast, but they're very intertwined. We have some similar authors, some similar concepts being investigated here. My mom always told me I needed to eat my veggies and my fruits. Is that still the case if we're trying to reproduce, Dalen? What can you tell us about the importance of fruits and vegetables? The primacy of fruits and vegetables remains true. Your mom is right. And, you know, it's in the news across the board. And of course, as you said, we're continuing in this vein of diet and fertility. And although, you know, it may seem like I'm trying to dominate the podcast, getting a two for one here, as you said, they're really intertwined. Two studies based on these massive longitudinal data sets uh, from the second generation nurses health study. So it's increasingly clear that our modern way of life, as I was kind of just describing, is suffused with all this chemistry that's a threat to our biology from the plastics that are ubiquitous, literally present at the nano level within our cells to formaldehydes and phthalates that fireproof our furniture and lend a rosy glow to our aging skin. We're living in a hostile environment. As you might expect, the highest proportion of chemical exposure comes from what we eat and drink. And the major sticking point there, notwithstanding concerns related to livestock, you know, all the plastics and food packaging, is the use of pesticides. In fact, uh, the combination of science and marketing has driven these kind of eye-watering numbers and growth in the sales of organic food products, which have doubled over just the last decade, recently surpassing $60 billion per year. I know, you know, big numbers, who even knows what that means, but it's a lot. It's a huge market. And given the commercial payoff, there's a, a lot of cynicism, I'd say, of so-called greenwashing and the amplification of the threat as a means of capitalizing on a growing demand for quote-unquote natural products. But there's also some science to support the trends. Retrospective analysis and even some clinical trials have demonstrated positive outcomes associated with increased intake of organic food, including reduced incidence of infertility, reduce incidence of birth defects and preeclampsia. But linking these behavioral dietary modifications in humans to changes in health, particularly in a diverse population like the nurse study, is a major challenge and requires very large numbers to power the analysis. And that's where Holly Harris's group from the Fred Hutch Cancer Center in Washington stepped in with two studies published a few months apart that called data from the second generation nurses health study to examine the link 
between pesticides and reproductive health. The first study led by Nicole Garcia examined the link between pesticide residue intake and endometriosis. And the second led by uh, Colette Davis examined the link between pesticides and fibroids. Each study followed tens of thousands of women assessing diet every four years using a food frequency questionnaire, binning them into either high or low pesticide residue groups within which the incidence of either laparoscopically confirmed endometriosis or ultrasound slash hysterectomy confirmed fibroids was assessed. And the results were mixed. Among roughly 2% of the observed women that had endometriosis, there was zero association with either the high or low pesticide group. And regarding around 10%, more than 10% of the women that uh, developed fibroids, the authors surprisingly found reduced risk in those that ate more high pesticide residue fruits and veggies. But importantly, the participants with the highest intake of fruits, so that was the group that had more than four fruits and vegetables a day, were less likely to develop fibroids. So one explanation is that the increase in fruit veggie intake may mitigate fibroid risk more than the pesticides increase the risk. So to your point, Pietro, your mom was right. Again, eat your fruits and veggies, even if they're laden with pesticides. I think it's a net gain. I would say this is encouraging for any of us who've been lectured by their crunchy Vermont spouse for more than a decade about the onslaught of harsh, unnatural compounds pouring into our bodies 24-7. That's a little personal thing right there. But I've also got to come back to the challenges facing these types of studies and the large numbers needed. While the authors have done the analysis on a scale that is powered to pull out real differences, the chemistry and the culture of our food intake over the decades has changed dramatically, I would argue. The first generation nurse study began in 1976. The second began in 89. Third generation began in 2010. Uh, that's approaching 50 years and encompassing a diversity of generational changes in diet and behavior. I mean, I'm talking TV dinners to, you know, vegan delights. So it, it's a big range there. And I wonder if those changes make this research question a kind of moving target. Regardless, the data are deep and powered to provide some ideas to the degree of risk. So for that, I applaud the authors and encourage our listeners to have a look. But I ask, what's your take, guys? With all the emphasis on clean eating in our culture, how do you counsel patients when they ask about the importance of specifically an organic diet? That's a great question, Dalon. I usually just tell patients, do your best. And I share with them environmental working groups, list of the dirty dozen. And I say, do what you can with this, but don't obsess over it. It's really not the most important thing, but it may help. And how do your patients in Oregon take that counseling? They're probably already not eating the dirty dozen. So Yeah, yeah we've been laying off the dirty dozen for decades, lady. What's next? I would say that in New England, I don't get asked that question probably as often as, as Molly's being asked or as Dalen's being asked in New York City. But patients all want to know, what else could I be doing to make all of this work a little bit better? And I think it's incumbent on all of us who are doing some of this counseling to make sure that what we're saying is really data-driven. Understanding the limitations of the data, understanding the stuff that's like slam dunk, we know for sure this is important, folic acid, avoiding alcohol, you know, some stuff that we've known for a really long time. But there's that slippery slope where you know, maybe you should be on this $90 a month supplement. Maybe you really should be spending extra money on this organic carrot instead of the non-organic root vegetable. And 
I think that's just placing the burden on patients. And this is already such a vulnerable group of men and women that we really have to be thoughtful about making sure what we're saying, because they're going to take it as gospel. We're holding an immense amount of power when in this seat and talking about reproduction, that we're, we're using it really wisely and not overdoing it or overselling the benefits of quote unquote clean eating. Yeah. And I mean, not practicing, not that I should be counseling anyone, but my wife, who is really emphatic about this type of stuff, even she, I think, will say that staying sane really trumps, you know, being on top of it and excluding every potential source. And the takeaway for me from this study that I think also is really encouraging is showing that there is an association, a, a positive association with just more fruits and veggies, period. And I think that when you look at these studies and you're trying to split hairs and really find the differences, it's encouraging that you got to look so hard. Whereas, you know, the detriment of like smoking, for example, and the benefit of a, a diet enriched with food and vegetables, those differences and those like disparities, they jump right out at you. So, and are obvious. So I think the fact that you can't find something, there's nothing obvious over the course of this, you know, relatively long longitudinal span and a lot of patients, I think that's really great news, and I'm counseling my mice along those lines, that's for sure. And good luck footing that bill for your lab mice. I'm sure lab food ain't cheap, and can't imagine clean, organic lab food is any cheaper. Guys, we're going to do a hard pivot to bring this podcast home, but continuing along the same vein of big data, we got some really big data to talk about. This is a study entitled Expectations for Family Building, Assisted Reproduction and Adoption Among Lesbians in the National Survey of Family Growth from 2017 to 2019. This is a study by Dr. Carolyn Violet and Brian Wynn from the Keck School of Medicine at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. These authors wanted to characterize the family building goals and experiences of lesbians compared to heterosexual females in the United States. And the authors tried to characterize these family building goals as well as their use of assisted reproduction, use of adoption, using data from something called the National Survey of Family Growth, or the NSFG. NSFG has been a national survey that's been going on since 1973, and it's designed to be a national survey of initially ever married women between the ages of 18, 15, and 44, but over the last several years has kind of expanded into wider age ranges, has also included men and women that have never been married. Uh, so it's a really big national survey that has a response rate of 69%, which is wild. If you've ever done a survey study, it's like pulling teeth to get to 20. And for somehow the government's been doing a really good job getting people to respond to surveys since the 70s. And check this out, they've only been using computers since 1995, before that was all on paper. So kudos to the government. And if you've been keeping up with the NSFG data, this is one of over 1,300 papers that have come from this data set. So again, build a good data set and you'll have grants for life. The old adage is certainly true. What this group did is they looked at this data only from 2017 to 2019, and they were able to identify 159 reproductive age lesbian respondents which represents to about 2.3% of respondents. And if you expand that to the national population, it should be reflective of about 1.7 million reproductive age individuals, which is kind of crazy. When you compare the lesbian respondents to the heterosexual respondents, the lesbians were younger. They were less religious, less likely to have children compared to heterosexual respondents, but they really didn't differ in terms of their race, ethnicity, education, household income. Here's kind of the big takeaways from what they found. They found that more than half of the individuals reported wanting a child in the future. And that proportion was really no different between lesbian and heterosexual individuals, right around 48 and 
One in five of both lesbian and heterosexual individuals reported that they would be greatly bothered if they were unable to have children. So right here, we're seeing that the motivations are similar, the desire is similar, and how disruptive or how frustrating that would be to you if you weren't able to achieve that. Still flame dunk, the same. But here's where things got interesting. Healthcare providers reportedly asked lesbians about their desire to get pregnant less frequently compared to heterosexual individuals. That's an opportunity for all of us to do better. I think we're doing a good job in the field of reproductive medicine because they're seeing us for trying to get pregnant, but if you're seeing them, your OBGYN, family medicine, primary care work, you gotta treat these the same. People clearly have the same motivations to build a family and they'd be frustrated if they can't, so you gotta ask. Only 26% of the lesbians reported having ever been pregnant compared to 64% of heterosexual individuals. Approximately one third of the lesbians with medical insurance were seeking reproductive services compared to the 10% of heterosexual individuals. So that intuitively makes sense. If you wanna reproduce as a lesbian couple, you're gonna need someone's help to do it. May not be an REI, it could be an OBGYN, but if you have insurance coverage, you're gonna take advantage of it and try to make that happen. The final part looks at adoption because there are many ways to build a family that don't include donor sperm and don't include our help, but lesbians were significantly more likely to seek adoption services, seven versus one and a half percent, though more likely than heterosexual individuals to report being turned down for adoption and more likely to report not knowing why they were able to be turned down for adoption and ultimately higher rates of quitting the adoption process compared to heterosexual couples. And this data kind of floored me. We all kind of knew this, we suspected it, we knew that some of these differences existed and the questions we were asking, their access to care, how they were ultimately treated in both our system and in the adoptive system, but it's always sobering to see some of this national data that reaffirms this. Molly, you're practicing in a very different part of the country. Is this kind of what your experience locally in the Pacific Northwest has looked like? I think we have a very um, diverse population at OHSU in terms of sexual orientation. You know, while I'm not directly talking about adoption with my patients regularly, I thought that this data was really disturbing, although not surprising. And hopefully we have less discrimination in Oregon. I did do some digging on what the laws look like in different states around adoption and foster care. And it's really variable state to state. It looks like some national bills protect families from discrimination have been proposed, but nothing's really been passed. And so that's hopefully uh, Blake can bring that up at advocacy day. I think that's a real area for potential there. What are things looking like in Massachusetts? I think so much of this is patient driven. If the patient comes to me wanting to talk about adoption or mentions it, I feel like I'm going to follow that train of thought. But I think this data really reaffirms to me that when we're talking about family building, you have to really be thorough in the different options. The options don't end with donor egg. They don't end with donor sperm. They don't end with gestational carriage. Their families are built in a bunch of different and beautiful ways. And for me, I'm going to be a little bit more proactive about mentioning it as an option that we can definitely refer and kind of chase down further. But I'm also going to be a little bit more practical when I talk to groups that are non-REIs about if you're taking care of patients who are not fitting this cookie cutter heterosexual mold, you got to be asking them about their intentions for family building. If not, you're missing the opportunity. Your patients are thinking about it just as much as your heterosexual patients, and you're doing them a disservice if you're not asking. So important, I think, reminder for all of us who, who deal with reproduction. I think it's like this is a societal issue in large part, obviously, but for more reasons than than we're talking about here. I think you guys as doctors, and, and let's be frank, we're trained in very progressive atmospheres. Like your number one priority is always the patient and providing. And I, I think the judgment never enters the equation. 
And the adoption data, I think, really is salient to me. There's more element of judgment. I think those people as well are motivated, number one, to place a child in a good home. And whether or not they have a political view about it, I think that they genuinely want to do their job to the best of their ability. So what I think we're talking about here is implicit bias. I think that the, a major problem here is that everyone thinks they're doing the best for the patient or for the child to be adopted, but they're not realizing that they're blind to the reality and the prevalence of people and that they're unrecognized. And that's where I think at a political level, societally, that's where you struggle with this, you know, don't say gay and the anti-woke agenda, because the real end point there for me is visibility. It is making everybody aware that we're surrounded by all these different and beautiful types, as you say, and all these potentially beautiful families. I think a lot of people outside of the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast with these pretty progressive atmospheres, they really don't even know that these different viewpoints and types of families exist. So I think that's where it really got, has to come from the top. Your point about implicit bias, there's definitely some explicit bias there too. There are some states that actually have passed bills allowing discrimination from families based on sexual orientation, which is just so upsetting. Well, I don't know that I have much more to add to that. I think you guys nailed it on the head. We can all be doing better, and it's our job, I think, to evangelize what we know, what we know from the data, and what our patients experience when we see them to the people who may not know. And I think that's the best we can do, at least. But like you said, Molly, hopefully Blake is having these conversations with legislators on Advocacy Day. So Big shout out to Blake for being there and a special shout out to Molly for substituting me in today. As always, it's good to be back with you guys. I love talking about the sister journals. I want to make a special plug that the conversation always continues beyond this podcast on our social media networks, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and a special shout out to the new Consider This section. You probably heard me talking about this already, but the Consider This used to live on the Fertility and Sterility Dialogue website. And as the conversation has shifted from chat boards on a website to social media, we've brought back the Consider This articles, which were the original articles that existed in front of a paywall that were unstructured and fit the classic mold of a research article, but were important things to be talking about and writing about. We brought them back to the main FNS webpage. So if you go to fertstert.com, you can see the Consider This articles now all there. The Consider This sections have also been expanded, so authors have the ability to submit things related to ethics hypothesis generation, current events, and even talk about articles outside of FNS. As long as you keep it under 2,000 words and under five references, these are articles that are going to be imminently ready to be shared on social media so you can have that rich discussion, won't live behind a paywall, and great patient-facing and media-facing articles that can help kind of get the message out for what we're trying to do. So I encourage everyone to take a look at that. Those can be submitted through the editorial manager process, like you submit your regular research articles with special requirements there that you can follow. As always, it's great to be back with all of you. Dalon, thank you. Molly, thank you. And until we meet again next time, bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. 
The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.